You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. What does a big old thorny honey locust tree on the campus of the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago have to do with Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, one of the towering figures of 20th century architecture? Would you believe this tree and its species have a place in the history of modernism, specifically its iconic landscapes? Professor Ron Henderson is here to talk about his favorite tree at IIT, about Mies van der Rohe and his colleague Alfred Caldwell, and how the honey locust became the feathery urban forest powerhouse it is today. I'm your host, Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. Now this old tree, standing here for more than four centuries, wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me about what it's like to be this old tree. I think I can speak for a lot of people when I say that we sometimes take honey locust trees for granted. If you live in a city in the eastern half of the United States, you've undoubtedly walked underneath the shade of a honey locust tree thousands of times. Whether walking along the street, traversing a corporate plaza, or strolling through a local park. They are everywhere with their irregular form and branching patterns, fine foliage, and ability to withstand the toughest of urban conditions such as drought, salt, and neglect. As an urban forester, I know that within the larger goal of selecting trees to plant for diversity, the readily available honey locust tree was the species to choose for the most difficult of situations, saving other more quote-unquote interesting species for places where they're more appreciated. Well, to all Gladitia triacanthos everywhere, I humbly apologize. It took the research and appreciative eye of my friend Ron Henderson to wake me up out of my maybe slightly condescending attitude to see how beautiful this tree is, and to look at it freshly through the eyes of Mies van der Rohe, his landscape architect Alfred Caldwell, and other mid-20th century modernists. Ron Henderson is professor and director of the Landscape Architecture and Urbanism Program at the Illinois Institute of Technology, or IIT, in Chicago. He's also principal of Lirio Landscape Architecture based in Newport, Rhode Island. He has a broad range of research and interests, including landscape-based urbanism, gardens and arboricultural practices in China and Japan, and his own gorgeous botanical drawing, which has been exhibited at the United States National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. He is the author of The Gardens of Sujo and numerous articles on landscape architecture and urbanism. His current research includes the Driverless City Project, which focuses on the urban design implications of driverless and autonomous vehicles. He's also my longtime friend. Ron, welcome to the show. Doug, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. The center of attention today is a 70-year-old honey locust tree that stands outside your design studio on campus at IIT. It's a tree with a distinct place in the history of landscape architecture and modernist design, which you're going to tell us about. But before we get into all that, could you just describe the tree for our listeners in your own words? Something that most people would notice first about the tree is that it's thorny. It's a Gladitia triacanthos, the honey locust. It's situated on the south side of IIT's Crown Hall, 
fairly close to the building, maybe only 10 or 12 feet uh, off of the building. It's probably 24 to 26 inches in diameter. Um, honey locusts are uh, what we refer to as an open habit uh, or a picturesque habit tree, which means that their trunks are not necessarily straight and their canopies are not symmetrical. So they kind of range in their branching patterns. They're also pinnate leaf trees, which means that their leaves are made up of many small leaflets. Right. It's actually a double compound. Uh, yeah. Some leaves are pinnate. Some are double pinnate. And sometimes they're pinnate and double pinnate even on the same leaf. I say pinnate. Have I been saying it wrong this whole time? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is very feathery leaf. It is. So they're fer they're fern-like. And what that does is it means that the, the sunlight penetrates the tree canopy. Uh, it's not a very dense leaf pattern. So light penetrates the tree canopy and reaches the ground, which means it's also a tree where grass and herbaceous layers of plants grow quite well underneath under honey locusts. I think what distinguishes it for me is that irregular form you were talking about. You know, I can tell that it's a honey locust tree from 200 feet away or more, the bending branches and the fine texture to the leaves. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why this was a tree that was used on the IIT campus. The IIT campus is a, you know, modernist campus, the master plan by uh, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, uh, the German architect who came to Chicago in the 1930s. And this picturesque habit and open canopy contrasts very distinctly against the kind of right angle cubic massing of the buildings designed by Mies van der Rohe. So there's a really rich relationship and contrast uh, between the buildings and the trees. Yeah, I, I I love your appreciation for this tree. Um, I have to say, honey locusts are sort of ubiquitous. You know, it's probably the most common street tree in the eastern United States, at least in the northeast. As a long time, maybe slightly jaded urban forester, I'd probably walk right by the tree without thinking about it too much. But um, you wrote an article a few years ago about honey locust trees called the modernist tree, and it was in Dwell magazine. And part of what makes this tree so special is what it's standing next to. And you had just started describing that. Yeah. So in, in Chicago, it is about one third of the species composition of the urban forest. So it has been planted quite a bit over the last 50 years or so because it's so successful, but also because, you know, as we mentioned, the canopy is fairly open, which means light penetrates to the ground. The, the leaflets are also very small so that when they fall to the ground, they kind of just disperse in the wind. So those qualities have made it quite a valuable uh, and desirable tree in cities. It's also very rugged. Yeah, it's probably the, one of the toughest trees that we plant. Right. In terms of soil compaction, salt, its ability to withstand abuse and <laughs> neglect. <laughs> um, it's one of those trees we choose when we're like 
okay, we need, we need the toughest tree that we can this, this particular spot, you know, that's a, that's a place for the honey locust. It is. And for, um, you know, in its relationship to buildings, because the canopy is open and rather diaphanous and the quality of light is so bright beneath it, um, it's also a tree that's become quite desirable by architects because it's a, it's a tree that doesn't hide buildings. Has a very soft shadow against the wall of the building, but it doesn't hide uh, hide the architecture, which has made it a very desirable tree uh, by some of the best architects and from some of the best landscape architects um, of the modernist period in America. Can you tell us about this building that this tree is standing next to, that where your design studio is? And tell our listeners who might not know who Mies van der Rohe is. So the building is Crown Hall. It is the home of the School of Architecture at Illinois Institute of Technology. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places and is recognized for a couple of innovations. First of all, the design studio, which is the place where architecture and landscape architecture students have their desks that they work on their design projects. It's one big room. So it's a universal space, which means everybody can see uh, what everyone else is doing. So it's a little bit of a teaching and learning in a public square kind of space. So several hundred students are in the same large space together. Right. Um, the building is a steel structure with glass walls. The steel structure at Crown Hall, part of the innovation is that the girders are on the roof and don't you don't see them inside the building. So the interior of the building is a very taut, clear rectangle with four corners and smooth floor and a smooth ceiling. And from the outside, um, it's a very open steel and glass structure. So you can also sense the, the life and the vitality of the teaching and learning that's happening inside of it. Conversely, when you're inside of it, you're very aware of the trees that Alfred Caldwell, uh, the landscape architect, worked with Mies and was, was also faculty at IIT um, designed and planted around the building. I was reading a little bit about it. This building as a whole is considered one of Mises' masterpieces. It is. It is. You know, some of his other well-known buildings includes the, the Seagram's building on uh, Park Avenue in New York, the Edith Farnsworth house, which was also a steel and glass house, uh, one of the first glass houses just outside of Chicago. But his master plan for IIT, as well as about 13 buildings that he did uh, on our campus, is the, is the highest concentration of his work. Most of us would consider Crown Hall um, the epitome of his work um, on our campus. Just backtracking a bit. So he is considered you know, one of the greatest modernist architects right, of the 20th century with Le Corbusier, Walter Gropius, Frank Lloyd Wright. And he was German. He was previously the director of the Bauhaus in Germany. That's all correct. And yes. I was brushing up on my art history. <laughs> and <laughs> until he was the last director of the Bauhaus in 1933, apparently the Gestapo raided their school 
and dispersed it. It was considered very un-German, um, sort of that international style of modernism. Um, they didn't want to have that. That ended the Bauhaus. And um, he ended up emigrating and then coming to the U.S. Yeah, that's correct. He um, and Gropius and several others were able to be invited to teach and contribute to universities uh, in the U.S. So Gropius went to Harvard. Mies van der Rohe came to IIT. Um, along with him, he brought Ludwig Hilbersheimer, the, the planner, um, and others in a very complex uh, geopolitical time, for sure. Right. And then and part of his responsibilities were he commissioned to redesign the campus, as you say. That's right. That's right. Uh, his master plan for for the campus was really one of the first importations of Bauhaus planning and compositional principles in urban planning um, in, in America. So the composition of buildings at IIT is not what one might expect at a university. We don't have quads, for instance. Um, the buildings kind of slip past one another and our landscapes are called fields and meadows. Um, so we don't have quadrangles or yard like Harvard, which is a more domestic term. Um, our terms are more ecological in a way, you know, fields and meadows. Uh, because the landscape flows through and among the buildings is not defined like a courtyard would be. So the the uh, the campus is a much more porous spatial order. You know, and the IIT campus, again, to distinguish it maybe from other campuses, because of this modernist spatial planning, um, it's an open campus. You know, we don't, because we don't have uh, quadrangles, it means we don't have gates and we don't have thresholds through the buildings where you walk through a, a doorway into the courtyard. Um, the perimeter of our campus is open. So it's open to the neighborhood, it's open to the community. So it's spatially integrated, not, not a place apart. Although the way the buildings are built distinguishes it from the adjacent neighborhoods. That also means that the landscape can flow through the campus. So with Alfred Caldwell's work with Mies van der Rohe, uh, building what's known as a campus in a park, the buildings float in this lightly uh, wooded uh, landscape that has a series of clearings or openings in the canopy, which are places where the fields are. Um, and so there's a continuity of the landscape that washes across the campus. That's again, a little bit distinct from having a series of enclosed spaces and quadrangles. Right. And a series of separate gardens. And a series of separate gardens. And so one of the things that helps the landscape read almost like a native savanna, which would be the, the native ecosystem here uh, in Chicago at IIT, is the use of the honey locust as, as one of the trees because of its irregular habit and open canopy. It's a very, 
naturalizing kind of tree, right? As opposed to a, a linden or a sugar maple or a tree that has a more tight habit and formal character. This ranginess and openness of the honey locust allows it to kind of dance through the campus. Right. And so it's sort of like a, a field tree. It is a field tree, isn't yes. It? In the Midwest, I think it's range. It's mainly um, like from Minnesota down into Texas, the central part of the country. And I mean, some people probably consider it a weed, but it grows along the edges of forests. And you had a quote in your article. Um, You write, in his 1939 book, Siftings, Prairie School Landscape Architect Jens Jensen wrote, there is a certain refinement about this tree in its golden yellow autumn color. It gives a soft light to the landscape. Jensen further described the honey locust's common situation along the edges of forests. Down in central Illinois, the honey locust is at home, and in some sections is known as the farmer wife's tree. This name has been given to it because of the fact that it was the farmer's wife who went into the wooded areas along the prairie rivers for locust saplings. It was beside such a country fence row that Alfred Caldwell, who had worked with Jensen, planted some of his first honey locusts at his Wisconsin farm in the early 1940s. First of all, why were the farmer's wives going in the woods for honey locust saplings? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get that part of it. Uh, But that's what he said. But um, maybe we could talk about who Alfred Caldwell was and how he came to work with Mies van der Rohe. Alfred Caldwell was a, a landscape architect, you know, active in Chicago through through most of the, the 1900s, uh, pretty much his life spanned uh, the century. Uh, he grew up in Chicago and began working with, with Jens Jensen and was, in fact working on the site with Jensen on the Ford estate uh, north of Detroit, which was one of the first times that the honey locust tree was, as you said, kind of pulled out of the field and brought into the garden. Uh, Jensen, who was a proponent of native plant species and an ecologist, among other things, was active in helping to save the Indiana dunes, Hmm. was, was using plants that maybe the more academically trained landscape architects on the East Coast were not looking at. So he was perfectly happy using this kind of field tree in um, in a garden. So Jens Jensen and Alfred Caldwell were the really the first champions of the honey locust tree. Yes. And I, I think Jensen built an appreciation for it, but there was really no Jensen landscape where the honey locust became iconic. It was Caldwell, and in a different way, the landscape architect Dan Kiley, who elevated the honey locust into becoming an iconic modernist tree. For Caldwell, uh, who designed really some of the most remarkable landscapes in America, all of which are in Chicago, with the exception of uh, Park in Dubuque, Iowa, the Alfred Caldwell uh, Lily Pool in Lincoln Park, 
Promontory Point Park near the University of Chicago in Hyde Park, um, as well as uh, a series of projects and ongoing work uh, at IIT. When Mies was relieved of his responsibilities at IIT as director of the architecture program, Caldwell resigned in protest and left the university. Um, he was invited to teach at University of Southern California in Los Angeles and also did some really remarkable projects there. Caldwell was one of the few people that both Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies van der Rohe liked. Frank Lloyd Wright invited Caldwell to move to Taliesin East in Wisconsin and work with him. Mies first met Caldwell at what's now known as the Alfred Caldwell Lily Pool, uh, a project that he had done when he was with the Chicago Park District. Mies encountered, as the story goes, encountered Caldwell um, at the park, which has a, a remarkable uh, wooden gate and a series of stone and wood pavilions that are often characterized as Wrightian. And Mies had a lot of admiration for this work and ended up inviting Caldwell to also teach uh, at IIT. So Caldwell was someone who both Frank Lloyd Wright wanted to work with and Mies van der Rohe wanted to work with. I don't think there are very many people that would be able to span this sense of kind of Bauhaus rigor around the way things are built and the Wrightian spirit of a kind of Jeffersonian agricultural America with a kind of sense of populist democracy <laughs> um, that Wright represented. And I think he learned a lot of this from Jensen in terms of how the landscape represented uh, American values in a, in a different way in the Midwest than the more, you know, kind of academic and maybe even still European-looking uh, East Coast. The, the, the modernist style, international styles, began in Europe, you know, after World War I, and had become international. But the honey locust is a species native to the American Midwest, as we said, and it's sort of distinctly American. And I find this sort of blending of backgrounds really interesting. But do you think that Mises' choice of the honey locust and, you know, working with Caldwell was purely aesthetic and practical? Or was there also, you know, an additional meaning there too about sort of adapting to culture beyond regional boundaries, if you know what I mean? I do. When when you look at the, the multitude of drawings and studies that, that Mies van der Rohe did as he was designing the IIT campus master plan, you see someone who's drawing the buildings with straight edges, with triangles and T-squares and very precise lines. And then when that's sort of laid out, you see that he picks up a fat, thick pencil and he does these incredibly gestural squiggles uh, across this very precise drawing. And he's drawing the trees. Right. Yeah, so the drawings give evidence that Mies was looking at that contrast between the cubic linearity of the buildings and the gestural uh, vitality of trees. Caldwell was able 
to fulfill Mises' sense of what the landscape would be by recommending the honey locust as the primary tree on campus because as we come back to this picturesque habit, open habit, um, and the quality of light that they uh, provide. The more I spoke to Ron, the more I realized that it was landscape architect Alfred Caldwell that helped catapult the honey locust from wild field tree to modernist darling. I had the honor and pleasure to speak with someone who knew him. His name is Richard Polanski, who owns an orchard not far from the Caldwell farm. After a short break is my interview with Richard, whose stories help bring Alfred Caldwell to life. So Richard, tell me a little bit about how you came to know Alfred Caldwell. Well, it was in 1982. Uh, My wife and I uh, decided to strike away from our career kind of jobs after a few years out, several years out of college. And we decided to buy an apple orchard and we had rented an orchard and um, got our feet wet that way. And not from rural backgrounds or anything, either one of us, uh, it was a big decision to make. And it was that same month in 1982 that uh, Caldwell called me because, uh, and that's through a reference to uh, my mother-in-law, who lived across the street from the Caldwell Farm in Bristol, Wisconsin. Gotcha. And he called me one night and asked me if I could come over to take down a little shed that he had built on his 40 acres. It was the first little shed, an 8 by 12 wooden shed that he built right after World War II when he bought that 40 acres. And uh, I said, well, I can do that. I worked in the area. Uh, so... 17 mile drive over there, met him. And he told me I, I didn't, he didn't have to be there when uh, I tore this down, but he gave me all these rules about not driving on the lawn and whatnot, of course, which I broke all of those rules, <laughs> tore it down, got rid of the concrete underneath it. And a few days later, he called me and said, when are you coming back? <laughs> he was so happy. He was so happy that I did it. And, uh, and how much he wanted to know how much uh, uh, to pay. And I said, I put the building back up. It's already in use. And he couldn't believe it. And then he would call at 7.30 almost every night <laughs> and tell, <laughs> saying, when can you come over? He clearly liked you. Right. Uh, we we hit it off pretty well um, right off the bat. He had a four-acre apple orchard up in the corner of the 40 acres. And that's something he planted the, the year after he bought that property, uh, right after World War II which was what the first time he ever had any money, he said. Uh, he was very, his family was very poor. Kind of wanted to do, I think, what Frank Lloyd Wright did, who he had met, uh, you know, 10, 12 years earlier than that. And they talked about uh, being, being architects in the United States at that time. Uh, it was tough to do. And so, you know, Wright went out on his own, uh, and started that uh, the farm, and Alfred's kind of fell in that same um, idea of a place uh, to be your own person and to be able to develop and 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 be totally free from uh, constraints. I think. How would you describe his personality? What was his? What was he like? Well, he could be the sweetest man. Uh, it, quite unbelievable in in certain ways, like. Uh, 
you probably most people are probably familiar with Jehovah Witness, uh, where a religious group comes and knocks on the door and they want to pass out uh, some of their information. And virtually every year, some summer day, they would show up back way back into the property and knock on the door. And he would ask me to get him a glass of water and we would sit and talk for a few minutes and he would just be so sweet about that. But he could also be just just a bear, uh, the wrong person at the wrong time. He would, uh, you know, physically, <laughs> just about physically remove you, you know, get out of here. And he, <laughs> oh, it could be terrible. One of his uh, colleagues um, at, at the campus, uh, Louis Johnson, uh, he they he could. Louis could come and they would go off and talk about bees or have these conversations about the school. And then two hours later, they could be in a huge argument and uh, Louis would have to leave. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so it was the the full range. He knew how to get things done. He did. And at the same time, uh, you didn't realize how hard you were working. He he was he was just so good at that, um, and I, I remember reading uh, some uh, some of uh, in the, from his memorial service people who had written uh, about their experience as students of his that so many people remarked that they had no idea they were capable of so much uh, that he brought it you know he got it out of them in one way or another. Um, That's amazing. So. What's one of your favorite stories about him? Oh gee, I've I've thought about all of these things so many times, and it's 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 hard it's it's hard to place one because there's so many. But I I think in relation to trees, which were such a big part of his life, and I I mean I don't mean tree, but like a particular tree, but trees and forests and and late after many years of working there I really didn't spend much time in, in the woods because we were always we were doing building projects and we had built a council ring out in the woods and then he wanted me to make a a, a path through the woods down around a marsh and then to, and then to meet up in a different different location and it was and the instructions were <laughs> this is just great the instructions were uh, I want a path that a blind man walking in the dark will not stumble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and a good path. Yeah, right, right. And of course, but then without disturbing uh, the, you know, the roots that are growing above, uh, above the ground. So it, it was quite a, quite a thing. So I, I started in on it, uh, laid out a few different areas where we could, uh, where I could do that. And I showed him, and then one day I was out walking around in, in a part of the woods that hadn't seen before, and it was not filled with the invasive species um, uh, buckthorn, uh, Ramnus cathartica, is it? Uh, and it, so that part of the forest was was not invaded. And I went, geez, that's really interesting. So I was walking around in that part, and I found a uh, a card table chair, you know, just a metal folding chair leaning up against a, a tree. I went, well, I'll take that up to the house. And so later when I was done, I 
took it up there and I said, I found this in the, in the, uh, in the woods, put that back. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a great, that is a really a great story. We, it, 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 it's him, you know, that, that was his chair out in his woods that he used. And what's, and what's a council ring? Uh, a council ring is, is, well, he got it from Jens Jensen, the, the landscape architect whom we worked for early on. And kind of, Alfred said he kind of saved him uh, from, made him a, uh, a man uh, to think big, big thoughts, not just small thoughts. Hmm. But uh, so Jensen built these, uh, a council ring. They can be, the one we built is only about 15, 17 feet in diameter. And it's a field stone, or not field stone, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, this one is limestone, uh, flat rocks, uh, stones that we that we were able to get from a quarry up in central Wisconsin, where we, we did go and he selected special pieces of that of those stones for certain spots. So it's a circle and it's about 17 inches high, you know, a decent sitting height. And there could be a fire uh, pit in the middle like this one, but it's for sitting in uh, talking and in um, meeting and, and being with people in, in a ring. Ron told me that he wrote poetry and short stories. What's your experience with those? Some things I can think of the one that he had me uh, it had me uh, have engraved in, on a uh, mantle of the a beautiful, fabulous fireplace in in his studio, which is a a, a, a wooden structure. He had me find someone to engrave, you know, to cut in like uh, uh, to cut into the stone. Mm-hmm. And the poem is uh, "Wisconsin Wood Smoke: um, Bright Days Wheel to Slush in Golden Rut," and that's a poem mm-hmm. that he wrote thinking about when he worked for Jens Jensen. And he would drive into Wisconsin uh, looking for uh, plant material, trees, mm-hmm. shrubs, flowers, um, different things. And he would drive his old old um, car. He said that it had, you know, cardboard for the floor and just holes in it. And he would be driving through the countryside and often in the winter driving along and you see that in the winter, the you know every house has a, a chimney with smoke coming out of it, and and that, and then as the sun comes up on these snowy, icy roads, they turn to slush, and then they get rutted, and so there's the golden rut, and uh, <laughs> so that was his that was his uh, comment on those days in of working for Jensen. I later asked Richard about Mies van der Rohe and Richard Caldwell. Do you remember the story of how they met? That was when uh, Meeson, I think it was uh, Hilversheimer. or no, Hilversheimer came later. They were, Mies was, it was in 1938 and Mies was in Chicago, uh, basically looking for a job. And Alfred was working on the, um, the lily pond on Fullerton at Lincoln Park. And Mies was there and uh, happened to be there. And they started talking and Mies got very interested in this man, Alfred Caldwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 
that's really when it all started. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know how long after that, but Meese started calling Alfred because Meese wanted Alfred to teach. And Alfred kept hanging the phone up on him because of uh, Mises uh, German accent. He thought this guy was saying, this is me. <laughs> this is me. He called several times. He finally realized it's Mies van der Rohe who's calling him. <laughs> right. So then they did meet and went through, you know, they had to figure out how to get uh, Alfred in, into a, into the school without having any uh, credentials other than what he could do. Jens Jensen had, Alfred Caldwell to um, assist him, and as did Mies van der Rohe. And Alfred Caldwell had you to assist him. Do you have a, um, a Richard Polanski in your life for you, that you're passing some of this information or knowledge down to? Um, boy, that's quite a question. Um, well, my orchard is my life, uh, aside from all the things that I've done with, with Alfred's things. And I really hope that I do have some time now as I'm 72 and I can't keep doing all this orchard work. Um, but for me, um, there's the, there are some young people here at my orchard, uh, uh, Rachel, who started working with me over at Caldwell's and now lives lives in the old farmhouse here and is married and there are some young people in my life that uh i'm hoping that they will continue our apple orchard here which uh is an important thing to me i'm i'm gonna let you go but i really enjoyed talking with you today and learning about alfred caldwell and and um, other people in his life and your work some great stories and um, i really enjoyed it so thank you well thank you After a break, we return with Ron Henderson. He talks about megafauna, the profusion of seeds and thorns on the honey locust tree outside of his classroom building, and why we rarely see these characteristics on honey locusts anymore. You're listening to This Old Tree. You know, I'm working on a new landscape architecture master plan for the campus with the Chicago landscape architect, Chandra Goldsmith-Gray. And we're looking to diversify the species because there are a few too many honey locusts in the overall proportion. And looking at things like Kentucky coffee trees and yellow woods, as well as the the nut trees, the hickories and, and walnuts. Trees with compound leaves. Exactly. Open forms. Compound leaves, open form. Uh, Almost all of them have yellow fall foliage. Right. Very nice. You and your family are from Indiana, um, which is smack in the middle of the honey locust natural range. Would you say that you have a homegrown appreciation for this tree? And what, what is it about the honey locust that speaks to you? I do not have a homegrown appreciation for the honey locust tree. (laughs) I have a homegrown appreciation of chinkapin oaks and persimmons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, this is, I think this is a learned appreciation, almost an academic appreciation uh, that grew out of being at IIT, but I began to understand how its qualities are so positive in this particular kind of uh, setting. You know, before I had a deep understanding of IIT, a place that I came to uh, about 
a decade ago, my appreciation for the honey locust was more focused on another project in Southern Indiana, in Columbus, Indiana, which is another uh, center of modernism in America, a small town with a remarkable collection of, of works by modern architects and landscape architects. There, the landscape architect Dan Kiley, uh, working in collaboration with the architect Aero Saarinen uh, and with Alexander Girard, the interior designer and graphic designer, um, worked on a project for the, for the Miller family, who were the owners of Cummins Engines. And one of the great modernist gardens in America is the, is the Miller Garden that, was, uh, that grew out of that project. Kylie had a more European sense of tree planting, whereas Caldwell planted drifts of trees Kylie planted grids and alleys and lines, a very geometrically ordered spatial sequence of, of distinct rooms and spaces using any number of species. But iconically at the Miller Garden is an alley of honey locusts that almost are like a, a landscape loggia between the living room of the house looking out over the great lawn that, that rolls down to, to the river. Yeah. Very beautiful. It is. It is. And those are much different trees. Kylie selected trees that were a little more consistent. So the trunks were the same diameter. They were a little bit more uh, straight trunked, whereas Caldwell might look to find the most gnarly asymmetrical tree. Kylie would try and find matched trees. So most likely Caldwell selected the tree outside Crown Hall. Oh, for almost certainly he 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 selected all of the trees for his projects. And is that in a drift or is that on its own? Um, it's part of a it's part of a little grove. You said it's covered in thorns, and. I assume seed pods. Yes. Which is interesting. But around this time, a new variety of honey locust was developed and patented, which you described in this in your article um, at Siebenthaler Nursery in, in Ohio. How did that play into how the honey locust was uh, planted and, and approached in the following decades? You know, so the native honey locust has very sharp, pronounced thorns that grow out of the trunk. Native Americans use those thorns to, you know, as needles and, and, and for sewing leather. So they're very sharp. And yes, they have very large uh, seed pods. They're, you know, they're in the poa family. So they're like big pea pods with a very leathery casing. And, you know, maybe they average somewhere around eight to 12 inches long. Those two characteristics, uh, thorns, which could hurt people, and the pods, which become litter in a in a urban setting or and there are a lot of them. And there are a lot of them, those are less desirable, although I love them. And on an aside, the honey locust range, as you noted, was in the Midwest. Over the last several millennia, the range of the honey locust has retreated because those seed pods were a symbiotic 
had a symbiotic relationship as food for megafauna. So giant sloths and mastodons were able to make, uh, able to eat the leathery seed pods. Uh, They would be scarified as they were digested. And so that relationship between megafauna and the honey locust is such that if you go to the Field Museum here in Chicago and you see the dioramas with these megafauna painted on the walls behind them are honey locusts. And so the pods, they're hard for other smaller fauna to to digest. So their range had been reduced. But it also meant that, you know, in the 20th century, that was not a very desirable trait. So the Siebenthaler nursery, my understanding is they discovered a tree not far from from their nursery, a honey locust tree um, that didn't have seed pods and was thornless. So they began to propagate it. Um, And so that variety, the uh, moraine honey locust, grew out of their nursery um, and was one of the first, in fact, I believe it was the first uh, shade tree patented in America after the Plant Patent Act from the 1930s. So Caldwell largely used the thorny pod tree. Right. He would have had that available to him. Yes. These new, uh, the new cultivars, but he chose not to use it. Kylie, on the other hand, selected Gladitia triacanthos enormous, as it's known, uh, which is the thornless seedless variety for the Miller Garden in Columbus, Indiana. Now, I called uh, Siebenthaler Nursery at your urging prior to this interview and um, spoke with Jeff Siebenthaler. And he said that the original moraine tree does no, no longer exist. The particular field where it was has been plowed under and is now housing development or something. Of course. He described it as, so there's Gladitia tricanthos enormous, which is the variety. And then moraine is a cultivar of that. But the moraine, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how far you look at, is not seen in the nursery trade much anymore. There are many different other cultivars that are used prominently. Yeah, there are Skyline and and many. Shade Master. Master, That's right. Other ones. So I have one last question for you. When you walk by this tree nearly every day, or at least very often, what passes through your mind when you see it? Giant sloths. <laughs> Very interesting. I, I had no idea. Um, so I, I teach plants and design um, in our landscape architecture and urbanism program. And for that class, the, the first day of the class, I do a walk around the campus. And I start with that tree. Uh, it's the first tree that I that I bring the students to. We walk out of Crown Hall, walk down the travertine steps, walk to the to the east, 30 feet or 40 feet. And we we start talking about the world that that tree embodies. It's Bauhaus, it's modernism, it's giant sloths, it's the quality of the light, it's the shape of the trunk and the branching. It's the shadows that it casts on the glass walls of Crown Hall. 
It's the texture of the light that penetrates into their studios where they're working. So much gets embodied in that one tree. So my campus walk is about an hour and 45 minutes, but I spend 30 minutes or more just at that one, at that one tree. We were talking about giving it a name and I was thinking, why not the Mies van der Rohe honey locust? But with your talk about Alfred Caldwell and his influence, I don't know, we'll have to come up with something different. We, we do refer to the space to the south of Crown Hall um, as the Alfred Caldwell Grove or as the Caldwell Grove. So it's interesting that we, we don't have a particular name for this one tree. So we tend to just refer to that collection as the Caldwell Grove. The Caldwell Grove. Okay. Thanks for joining me today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Same here as always, Doug. Let's plant some more trees. Will do. Take care. Well, I ended up calling it the Mies van der Rohe honey locust in the Alfred Caldwell Grove. Ron, I hope that's okay. Maybe it'll catch on. And thanks again for elevating the honey locust tree in my eyes and the view of history. And now it's time for the segment Tree Story Shorts, where listeners can share a story about a tree in their lives. Here's Tom Brennan of Coventry, Rhode Island. This is Tom Brennan with an ode to the lone tree. At the corner of two well-traveled roads stands a field of tall grass, and in the center of that grass stands a lone tree. I do not know what kind of tree nor what kind of grass. I have always assumed that it was a hayfield and thought of the man who would cut it as the farmer. Maybe I'm right, or maybe he is just a guy who mows the grass every now and then. But one thing is certain. He has always mowed around the lone tree. He has never cut it down. He has always respected the tree. Perhaps, as many of us do, revered it for its beauty and its uniqueness, its abject perfection. Maybe it was that, or maybe he has just never bothered. Perhaps it was simply less trouble to mow around it. Whatever the case, year in and year out, the tree has stood. For my whole career of thirty years in this, the largest of towns in the smallest of states, that tree has stood in that field and on that corner a silent witness to the seasons and to the growth of the town around it. Thousands of people have stopped to photograph the lone tree. The lone tree has never objected, never demurred, never been asked for nor signed an autograph or a release form. It has changed, as we all change, yet it has never changed at all. Ever stable, ever beautiful, ever stately. Its proportions exactly correct. A perfect specimen of whatever species of tree it is. Under its branches, countless birds have nested. Around its base, a thousand rabbits have been born. In its field, as many woodchucks have raised their young. Deer have nibbled at its lower branches. Young lovers have sat in its shade. The lone tree sees all, knows all, keeps all their secrets. 
Now the hayfield, if that's what it is, is to be developed. Condominiums, they say. And they say such ideas have been proposed in the past, but the construction, or the destruction, has never happened. Am I selfish when I hope that it never does? When I hope that the farmer keeps on mowing and the lone tree keeps on treeing? Well, then I am selfish, because I hope the lone tree remains for many, many more seasons. More birds and more bunnies, more woodchucks and more deer, more lovers and more secrets. Thanks for submitting that, Tom. I know how mesmerizing a lone tree can be out on the landscape. I hope the condos stay away and that tree lives on. The next tree story short is from an arborist named Bear Lavangi. Bear is the co-founder of the Women's Tree Climbing Workshop based in Vermont, which has been taught by women for women since 2009. It's an inspirational and much-needed professional program. Frankly, you'd never see me up there with ropes, harness, and chainsaw. What I didn't know, however, was that when pruning the crown of an evergreen tree, an arborist might be on the lookout to sustainably harvest a Christmas tree. My name is Bear Lavangi, co-founder, lead instructor, and executive director of the Women's Tree Climbing Workshop. First and foremost, thank you, Doug, for providing this wonderful piece of tree documentary for the world. And secondly, for inviting me to share a story about a tree that's impacted my life. I contemplated a while about which tree I would speak about because to share only one story about the standing people is too arduous. They've all impacted me, and that is why I've really dedicated my life to arboriculture. However, after recognizing that this month is the month of winter solstice, I had a moment of clarity. This magic month of December is all about celebrating trees, so whether it is a gift of peace from one nation to another, a family tradition of picking out one special tree from a Christmas tree farm, or walking into the woods to cut and drag a tree home, we all recognize the beauty and charisma that a tree brings to our holiday season. This year, I hope to be blessed with a co-dominant lead from a tree that needs pruning. It shall be between four and six feet tall and only two and a half feet in canopy circumference to fit in the small corner of the kitchen dining room area. So why is this month magical? Well, for me, it's easy. Besides Arbor Day, this tree-centric month celebrates rituals. From the moment you bring the tree into your abode, you are encouraging the smell of freshly cut evergreen to waft through your home. Once you cut off the base and get it into the stand, the debate of whether to hydrate it with water or ginger ale might start. While decorating, you still need to choose between strands of white or rainbow-colored bulbs, which ornaments come out of the box and whose days, and then who gets to live where on the tree and how deep into the canopy it must go. Then... When you go to bed, you need to decide, will the tree go dark or will it continue to glow in all of its glory? In the next coming weeks, the celebration continues with more watering and then placing all the lovely wrapped gifts under it. Finally, after culmination or post-holiday, which day is the exact moment to dethrone your green and now shedding hero? Please remember to honor your tree for giving its life to your celebration and to share your love of tree magic by recycling or composting your evergreen hero. To all of you that celebrate, may the tree you choose bring you joy and peace for you and your family. I'm going to end it there. Thank you, tree lovers, for joining in and listening. An extra big thanks to Professor Ron Henderson and Richard Polanski for coming on the show. 
You can connect with us via Facebook or Instagram to see photos of the trees we talk about and to get regular updates. You can also visit the website at thisoldtree.show. This is arborist and songwriter Dee Lee to take us out with his music. I'm Doug Still, and you've been listening to This Old Tree. See you next time. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree Shadow and shade Kids down the block are selling lemonade Send them down a cool breeze, a sweet cascade Tailor made by this old tree. Sixteen hundred, you were just a seed, reaching for the sky high, waiting for a chance to take your place in the warm sunshine. Here I go. High above the place where the people grow Leave my troubles on the ground far below So I can get to know this old tree Summer sparkle in your leaves Autumn winds will bring a release Winter calls for you to sleep Spring returns again in green Above the town Ships on the water spy your royal crown Sentinel of green to points off starboard bow Homeward bound to this old tree In 1800 you felt the thunder roll And lightning split the sky high Though the fire raged in the little town below You managed to survive With the scar upon your side This old tree Reach out and touch a living history Beneath my hands an ancient mystery How small I am by this old tree